Revelation 21. Um, before I jump into the text this morning, just one thing to kind of a church moment here. Um, downstairs, church ministry that takes place with the children. Debbie has somewhere around 90 children, a little bit more than that, involved in the children's ministry. And really, I don't mean today, you don't have to get up and leave, really could use help in the children's ministry over the period of the months ahead. She has about 40 volunteers that work from among the body to help, but most of them are on a rotational basis and are able to be involved when the schedule allows. Um, But there's times when people call in sick and people with schedule conflicts and she could really use some more adult workers in the children's ministry. Today she's fully staffed, everything's good, don't have to leave. Um, But think about that. Pray about that. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into the life of New Hope Church and you want to serve in some capacity, that's one really good area to start. There's others, of course, but that's one I told Debbie I would mention this morning because um, she just had a kind of a struggling week this week, making sure that there was enough workers in place, and that's kind of an ongoing thing. So before we jump into the text this morning, let's take a minute and pray that uh, God would give us the insight of his Holy Spirit to be able to understand these things. Would you pray with me? God, you gave us your spirit as a promise, as a pledge, you said, um, until our adoption is complete, until we're standing before you. And we ask that you would use the power of that spirit that works in our lives to give us the capacity to understand these things that were written down 2,000 years ago. We, we long to know more of you. We long to know more of what awaits us. And uh, there's details here this morning, Father, that are just incomprehensible. But nothing is impossible with you. And we take this text at its face value and understand that you gave it to us as a promise and as a commitment of things that you want us to know. And so in the midst of our very busy weeks, whatever we did this last week and what we have yet ahead of us this coming week, this time we take and set aside to slow down our pace and learn more of you. We ask that you would use it to make it profitable in our life. It's in Jesus' name we pray and ask these things. Amen. Let me frame where we're headed this morning by taking you to Romans, first of all. You'll see Romans 8.22 up on the screen. It should... Look at that as I read along. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body." It's really hard to eagerly anticipate or eagerly wait for something you don't understand. Even though it's written there by Paul saying we we wait eagerly, it's hard to wait eagerly for something you haven't seen. Yet we know it's there. Gratefully, God gave us these descriptions in Revelation to be able to understand what is unfolding What we understand from the teachings of Scripture, especially what we looked at last week, creation, meaning all of us, all of the planet Earth, is in bondage. In bondage because of the fall of man back in the Garden of Eden. When man chose to rebel against God, 
did the stiff arm motion and say, no, I choose this, and fell out of relationship with God. And so sin entered the world. God prepared everything, gave us paradise, made it perfect for Adam and Eve and for all the ancestors afterwards. But because of the entry of sin, the old earth has to pass away. And the, old, the new earth comes into being, as we learned last week. So last week we looked specifically at this massive, cubed-shaped city that is heaven that John saw descending to the new earth. This massive 1,500-mile square, Revelation 21 points it out specifically. Staggering measurements. Remember what we talked about. New York City to Cancun, Mexico. Cancun, Mexico to Phoenix, Arizona. Phoenix, Arizona to Billings, Montana. Billings, Montana to New York City. That's 1,500 miles square. And that's one city that Scripture talks about, the city of heaven. And it's 1,500 miles high. How many people can fit inside there? Most statisticians who've studied human history and the development of human races around the world as they migrated, estimate there's been about 100 billion births on planet Earth. I don't know how accurate that is. Currently in this world right now, 6.5 billion people live. How many of the supposed 100 billion births will occupy this city? Last week where we left off, streets of gold. We use asphalt on our streets. God uses gold for sidewalks and streets. And it's so pure, it's translucent. Our gold is not pure. Even our finest gold, 24-karat gold, light won't penetrate. But recently discovered by those who work in the field of geology, they understand that gold becomes translucent when it's pounded, when it's beat really thin. So our gold here on planet Earth, light can shine through it but it has to be thinned out. God's gold, it's so pure that light penetrates it. And then we learned about on the base of this city, these incredible foundation stones. Starting with diamond, there's 12 foundation stones. Diamond all the way up to ruby and emerald. I have cement for the foundation of my house. I bury my foundation. God's foundation is this brilliant prism. And he says this, he loves beautiful things. And he takes beautiful things and he lavishes it upon this city. That's an amazing thing. God lavishes his beauty on this city. And note this, this city is being prepared for you. If you name the name of Jesus Christ and you follow Jesus as your Savior, he said, this is being prepared for you. Look with me on the screen, John 14, 2. For I go to prepare a place for you. So say this with me. He's preparing this place for me. Let's say it together. He's preparing it for me. Okay, I heard a lot of ladies' voices. Guys, I know you like beautiful things too. You just don't say it as often. He's preparing this for you also. So guys, together, he's preparing this for me. You feel the sense of ownership? It's for you, all of us. And this description we're about to see is given to us by a tour with an angel. 
an angel takes John inside the city to give details about what's taking place. And it's pretty phenomenal. Open up your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 21 if you haven't already. We're going to be in Revelation 21 verse 22. If you don't have a Bible with you, they're going to find them in the pew racks this morning in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to own your own so you can take one of those with you when you leave today. That's our gift to you. Also, you'll see the passages on the screen. Revelation 21, 22. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. The very first thing this good first century Jew does is he looks for a temple. And John says, the very first thing I see, there's no temple. What's the deal? Now, it's very natural for him to look inside the city of heaven for a temple. Every ancient city in antiquity, any city of any importance, had a temple, at least one. And John says, I see no temple. As long as there's been sin on earth, as long as man is in a fallen state, there's a need for a church, a temple, a place to connect with God. We go to church. We go to the temple in ancient times to connect with God. So John very naturally looks to see if there's a place of worship. And there isn't any. The word is naos, N-A-O-S, and it means to dwell or to inhabit. So God inhabits in the temple. Why not? Why isn't there one? There won't be a need for a temple. There won't be a need for a naos. Why? Because the passage tells you, the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are the temple. Now there's a paradox. There's no temple, but there's a temple. John says, I don't see a temple, but there's a temple. The temple are the Lamb of God and God himself. How can an entity be a building? Therein lies the first mistake because many people in modern-day America or in the world think of church as this structure when indeed the church is you. The church is a being, an individual, a person. And so there's no temple here because God is the temple. So I'll say it again. As long as there has been sin in the world, there's been a need for a place to go and worship God. We come together and encourage each other. We learn together we pray together. We sing together. But in eternity, we're living in the presence of truth. And so, every day is filled with worship of God because his presence is there. You'll understand this a little bit better in just a minute. But declaratively, life will be worship. There's not a day when we will go to worship God. Everything we do will be combined and consumed with worship. No need to go to a temple, no need to take communion, no need to go to a church, no need for a day of worship. Everything will be worship. So let me help you understand this. I'm going to expand on it just a little, minute, a little bit. Go all the way back to the time of the garden. God is in fellowship with Adam and Eve. Scripture says that he walked in the Garden of Eden with them in the cool of the day, passed through the garden. But they rejected God, and so they fell into sin. So God shows up a little bit later in the Bible and says, you can build a temple, and I will inhabit the temple. I will dwell there. My presence will be there. People came to the temple and made sacrifices. They communed with God once again, although man was separated, no longer walking in the garden. Now God is separated from the veil because in the midst of the temple, God said, build a place that's called the Holy of Holies. 
And inside the Holy of Holies would be the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, tracking with me? Think Indiana Jones. Inside the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant. Powerful unit. We don't understand everything that was involved with it. But God said, take this Ark of the Covenant, put it in the Holy of Holies, but you need to separate my dwelling place from man because man is sinful now, and so construct a veil. So this very large veil was built. Most historians believe it was up to 12 inches thick, woven fibers together. And this veil hung over the Holy of Holies, prohibiting man from going inside. Only the whole high priest could go in, and that's once a year. Most of man could not. But now we see when Jesus arrives on the scene, after Israel rebelled against God, could not fulfill the law, the temple wasn't fulfilling its function anymore, Jesus comes on the scene to once and for all deal with the issue of sin. And so as Jesus is on the cross, cries out his last breath, a great earthquake takes place. Look with me on the screen of what happened to the veil. Matthew 27, 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Jesus shredded the veil. And now man has access to God again through the work of Jesus Christ. Only now, because the Spirit indwells us, God's Spirit, the naos, we become the naos, the temple. Look with me on the screen. Now in the church age, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know that your body is a naos, a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. So from Adam and Eve, close fellowship, to partial fellowship in the temple, to complete fellowship through Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit indwelling us, we're now told that the Holy Spirit is nothing but a pledge to a future promise. Look with me on the screen again. Ephesians 1.13. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who has given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. I think that's one of the most fantastic passages in all of Scripture, and you can't get it in one glance. Let me back you up and show you again. Go back to the first slide, guys. Verse 13, in him you also, talking about you, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, talking about you again, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Now, even though God's Spirit indwells us, if you name the name of Christ, it is but a glimpse of the full fellowship we will know of God in heaven, as you're going to learn in just a minute, because then we will see him face to face. So now we have the Holy Spirit as a promise, as a pledge, but eventually, 
This is so amazing that we learned last week that the voice from the throne yelled it out three times. God is dwelling among men. Let me refresh your mind. I'll take you back. Chapter 21, verse 3. Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He shall dwell among men, them. They shall be his people. God himself shall be among them. Fantastic truth. So what was lost in the garden of close fellowship is once again restored. Let's move on. Verse 23. And the city has no need of the sun or the, the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Now this is radically, fundamentally different than what we know here on planet Earth, isn't it? We need the sun. We need that interstellar being to provide help with gravity, the tide movements associated with the moon. We need the radiant heat. We need the vitamin D. We've got to be exposed to the things that the sun gives us. But here it says there's no need of it whatsoever. You're going to see why in just a minute. Now, notice really closely that actually the passage doesn't say there's no sun. It says the city has no need of the sun. The sun, in comparison to God's Shekinah glory, would be like going out in our parking lot in the midst of the day at high noon and turning on one of the mercury lights out there. You see the bulb lit up, but its rays are insignificant. It casts no benefit of light. You can see the bulb. So God's glory compared to the sun, you don't need the sun. God's glory provides everything. Now imagine this, no filaments to burn out. No more changing light bulbs in your house. I change lots of light bulbs. No emptying of a fuel source. Lamps no longer need oil. It's an energy source that's always there because it comes from God himself. J.A. Seiss is a theologian who captured a pretty good thought about this. You'll see his quote on the screen. Shining is not from, the shining is not from any material combustion, not from any consumption of a fuel that needs to be replaced as one supply burns out, for it is the uncreated light of him who is light, dispensed by and through the Lamb as the everlasting lamp. God's glory shining all the way out like it did in the Holy of Holies. Think back to the time of the temple. Now we understand in the holy place on the other side of the veil, there's this 12-stand lamp. We call it a menorah today. This lamp that has candlesticks. But that was in the holy place. You go through the veil into the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, there was no light source in there, yet it was always bright because of the presence of God in this room. That's the kind of light we're talking about. Think of Moses coming down off the mountain. Moses goes up, spends time with God. He says, God, show me your glory. And God's glory shows up, and Scripture says, it's like the afterburner of a jet. Moses can't even look at it. Yet when he comes down the mountainside, even without seeing the face of God, he is so radiant that there's like beams shooting out from his face. Scripture says that the people couldn't even look at him. He had to put a veil over him, glowing in his presence. Step forward to the time when Jesus' birth was announced. Angels show up, shepherds on a hill. So brilliant was their appearance, these guys collapsed. 
move forward in time, Jesus is standing on the mount, what we call transfiguration. He takes James and John with him up on the mountainside. God's glory shows up again. Let me read it to you. Matthew 17. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on the high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. Luke's writing of that says that his clothes became whiter than any launderer could make them. I've looked at the Greek interpretation for this. It says it was just busting out, gleaming rays of brilliant white light from his face and from his clothing. Step forward one more to Paul's experience on the road to Damascus. Paul's riding a horse. God shows up again. Brilliant bright light. Scripture actually says it was brighter than the noonday sun, so much so that it blinded Paul. That's the Shekinah glory, and it's glowing out of this city, which reflects everything. This city made of gold with crystal and diamonds and jewels, and God's glory is there, and no wonder it's like a prism of a radiant jewel. Absolutely stunning to look at. And that's just the first glimpse. Go with me to verse 24. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now when we think of nations... Think of Asia, for instance. We think of customs and language and appearance. Think of South America, customs, language, and appearance. We think of a different race than what we think of when we think of North America necessarily, if you think back to the time when it's settled by Europeans. When we think of nations, we think of people who are of different races. However, that's not what this is referring to. The word that's used here is ethnos, Like ethnic, look at the definition with me on the screen. A race as of the same habit. A tribe, especially a foreign one, non-Jewish, Gentile. Meaning all of us. It's a huge melting pot. All of the Gentiles coming in and out of the heavenly city. So in the broadest sense, this is all the people who have ever lived, who have been in favor with God, who have named the name of Jesus Christ or the Old Testament saints moving in and out of the city. So it says the kings of the earth will bring their glory into the city. What's up with that? This is highly speculative. I told you that I would speculate, and back in Revelation chapter 1, I would let you know when I'm speculating. I'm speculating here. I believe what it's saying here when it's talking about the kings of the earth bringing their glory into the city, it's talking about those who have been the boldest for the kingdom those who have suffered great pains, who have achieved much for the kingdom of God. And they've been elevated to such a level that even they recognize that any glory they would receive for their work on earth is offered to the king of kings. Highly speculative, I know. If you want to correct me on that, you're welcome to do that. Just not right now. It says the gates never close. Did you ever think of heaven as being a gated community? How interesting is that? The gates never close. 
Ancient walled cities always had gates and they closed them at sundown to keep out the criminals, the marauders, those who would invade. There's no invaders here. The gates are always open. It's like 7-Eleven. It never closes. The gates are swung wide open. So this depicts complete security. Absolutely secure in your environment there. No burglar alarms, no 911, no police system. There's nothing to worry about. And do you notice that there's an access card? Only those who get in have their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. That's your admittance pass to get into this gated city. Only those who have their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So the whole picture that's going on is this socially bustling city, metropolitan life, people coming and going, moving in and out. And now we get to see the interior view in verse 1 of chapter 22, what it looks like. We're only going to do five verses of this. Revelation 22, verse 1, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the middle of its street, On either side of the river was the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And when you think of the river of water life, don't think of Willy Wonka and the chocolate river coming down, okay? That's not what this is talking about. This crystal clear river water, it says, is flowing out of the throne of God. God is always associated with eternal life. Jesus referred to it constantly. God being the source of eternal life. And here it's pictured that this river, this crystal river flowing out of the throne is the source of eternal life. Look with me up on the screen, John 4, 14. The water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. So there's Jesus associating eternal life with water. And it's clear as crystal as we understand it here. Everything in heaven is sparkling clear. And so we see it's coming from the throne. So I picture it this way. God's throne, this great river cascading down, flowing through this massive city. How big is this river? I have no idea. But look at this cool detail next. In the middle of the street on either side is the tree of life. The most accurate Greek interpretation means in the middle of its path meaning where the river flows through, there's this huge tree. Now, I have a pretty good imagination. I can envision some things that, obviously, Scripture says we can't even envision. But here it says there's this tree of life on either side of the river. We haven't seen this tree since the Garden of Eden. Do you remember that? Genesis chapter 2, we're told that this tree of life was in the Garden of Eden. Look with me on the screen, Genesis 2.9. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So there it is, something good for us originally in the beginning. Now jump forward to the time after the fall, Genesis 3.22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So at that point, God decides to put an angel in front of the Garden of Eden. He removes Adam and Eve, casts them out, and places 
an angel with a flaming sword, Scripture says, to prevent man from entering the Garden of Eden and having access to this tree. This tree somehow provides for those who are immortal. Jesus referred to it in Revelation chapter 2. Look on the screen. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. So this tree of life, according to what Ezekiel wrote, spreads out all along this huge riverbank. Now I have this image in my mind. I don't want you to mess with it too much, okay? So don't correct me because I, I like my image. You ever seen the movie Avatar? And that really massive tree of life? Now, we've got this crystal flowing river coming from God's throne, moving through this monstrous cube city, and Scripture says it straddles either side of the bank. How big is this tree? I have no idea. But what was once rejected by our ancestors is now fully restored and available to us again. We know that we have trees on this planet that are 300 feet tall, the great sequoias out in California. I've done some research because of my fascination with woodworking, and I found years ago that in Australia, they discovered trees, petrified forest trees, underneath, in the subterranean surfaces of the earth that they unearthed that make the great sequoias look like matchsticks. Giant, massive prehistoric trees. So we've got a 1,500-mile cube city. How big is this tree? How big is your imagination? I don't know. The root system going in on either side of the banks and straddling this crystal river. Cool imagery. And then there's this point of intrigue. We've got 12 crops, 12 kinds of fruit, yielding every month. God likes fruit trees, apparently. And we've got... 12 different kinds of fruit. Have you ever seen a fruit tree with 12 different fruits on it? I have not. Obviously, it's not part of our world, but pretty cool. Every single month, it produces a different fruit. And here's the point of intrigue. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Now, at first, that can be really confusing to look at because we're thinking, oh, wait. Now, in heaven, we're told there's no illness, there's no dying, there's no death, there's no pain. What do we need the healing of the nations for? Well, let me show you the word that's used for healing. Therapeia. There's the definition on the screen. Life-giving, health-giving, therapeutic. Do you like to go to the spa? Is Douglas J. right way high on your list? Okay. Picture therapeia as being therapeutic. That's the root word meaning for your good, not to treat illness. This does not imply illness. This means like a therapy treatment. Picture hot rocks on your spine, okay? I don't know how to describe it. Pedicures, whatever it is, what does it for you? That's what this is talking about. Do we actually eat in heaven? It says there that the, the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Jesus said they will eat from the fruit of the tree. Do we actually eat? Well, we know that angels ate with Abraham and Sarah when they were here on planet Earth. We know that Jesus had a meal with the disciples after he was resurrected. So I'm kind of hoping for chocolate, okay? (laughs) Might be pizza, I don't know. It's inconceivable. That's what it really comes down to. Our standards are here, God's standards are here, and it blows our mind. Inside is apparently like a beautiful garden reminiscent of Eden. 
That's all the picture that's being painted for us. This is paradise regained. So picture this river, God's throne, flowing through this massive city, huge tree, fruits available for everybody. That's a really great image. Move with me into verse 3. Here's the great promise. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. No longer any curse. That is the most dramatic change from planet Earth. We live with sin, death, injury, pain, crime every day. It's no longer there because sin is gone. Satan is gone. The curse is gone. Now we see here that there's no temple, but there is a throne. How interesting. The throne that we learned about back in chapter 4. That magnificent throne that we studied about in about week 8. Go back later today and read Revelation chapter 4 and look at God's description of his throne. It says the throne is there. Read it again later and picture it in the midst of this amazing city. And then it says, His bondservants will serve him forever. Eternity, regardless of what you think, is not in a time of eternal idleness. You will be active, you will be serving your God. Now, you may be thinking, Hey, I was looking forward to a time of rest. Well, Scripture says you will have a time of rest. But when we think of work, we think of labor and toiling and wearing out our body. Scripture indicates that God is a God of purpose. So whatever he has for you to do, it will be purposeful and it will be meaningful. I don't know. Maybe he'll give me a big chainsaw and say, go out to the back 40 and cut some firewood. I'd love it. I don't know what does it for you, but God says that he will have purpose for you, meaningful purpose, and you will serve your God. And right after the mention of serving God, that we are his bondservants serving him, it says we will see his face. That's something we have never been able to do. No man has been able to ever see the face of God. I'm going to ask you to write down in your notes 1 Timothy 6.15. It's not going to be up on the screen. Later today, go back and read it yourself. And just this week, think about what the description is in 1 Timothy 6.15. Let me read it for you now. God, the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. That's the one we will see face to face. In this amazing surrounding, it's not enough just to dwell there. You will see the face of God. And then it says, his name will be on us. What is that? That's a sense of ownership. Parents, you take your children downstairs, Debbie checks them in, or some of the team workers down there check them in. What do they give you in return? A registration card. It says, I own this child, and no one else can pick it up. That's mine. That's what you see here, God's sense of ownership. He's put his big registration program on us. You belong to me. That's security. So today, we understand glimpses of God little pieces, 
but not the full picture. We don't have a complete understanding. And so John wraps it up in verse 5 by telling us what we will do. Verse 5, And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. Question, who's the they? You. He's preparing it for me, right? You said that earlier. You're the they. Look at, he says it three times in there. And there will no longer be any night, and they, you, will not have the night need of a light of a lamp, nor the light of a sun, because the Lord God will illumine you. And you will reign. How long is forever and ever? You're not as bold as Preston Granger, apparently, in the first service, he said. It's a long time. (laughs) Forever and ever and ever and ever. And they will not only serve, but reign. How fantastic is that? So here's the truth. We haven't even begun to scratch one billionth of the understanding of what waits for us. My Bible says I can't even begin to imagine, and I can imagine some pretty amazing things. I'll bet you can too. Let me back that up by showing you what the Bible says. 1 Corinthians 2.7. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen, ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. No wonder the writers of the Bible said, what kind of love is this? that we should be called the children of God and that we're adopted in. The adoption just hasn't been realized yet. That is amazing truth. I said three weeks ago to you this statement. I'm going to repeat it again this week and next week. What you believe about God determines what you do next. It applies to every facet of life. What you believe about God determines what you will do next. If you believe all of this, it determines your view of your life trajectory. Without a doubt, what you plan out for your life pattern is determined by what you believe about God.